0: The Press Box is here to catch you up on the latest media stories. Hosted by Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker, these guys have the insight on the biggest stories you care about. Check out The Press Box on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state.
1: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman and I am a staff writer at The Ringer. Joining me today our Ringer staff writer Ben Lindberg. Say hello, Ben. Hello. And back from his, I presume, salubrious vacation, uh, foraging for mushrooms in the woods outside of Indianapolis uh, or something like that. Zach Cram, Ringer staff writer.
0: Say hello, Zach. I miss one week and lose my leadoff spot in the introduction. Wow. <laughs> you got, you got
1: pipped. Wally pipped, man. Yeah. <laughs> this is a baseball show. You of all people should know the dangers of being Wally pipped. Uh, I would like to wish all both of you and all of you listening a happy Friday the 13th. Uh, I took this occasion to look at the... Expanded standings page on baseball reference and would like to invite both of you to guess who the unluckiest teams in baseball have been by a Pythagorean record this year.
2: The Marlins.
1: Toronto. The Marlins are one. And Toronto is two. Did you also look at this or did I put the <laughs> this gag in the wrong dot? No, I think uh, we just uh, yeah. pay
0: attention to the sport we are paid to cover. <laughs> yeah, oh. baseball
2: experts over here.
1: Okay, yeah, i Maybe I should start doing that too. <laughs> Speaking of Toronto, we saw a matchup uh, last night of the, I think, two leading contenders for uh, for AL MVP. We saw Shohei Otani on the mound, uh, throwing a bunch of sinkers away to Vladimir Guerrero Jr. The there was no fireworks. There was a strikeout, a walk, and sort of a seeing eye single. I think that I don't know, that counts as a draw. Maybe a like a, a split decision for for Vladito. What do you guys make a? that matchup.
2: Yeah. In the head-to-head matchups, I I suppose you could say that. I mean, Otani actually out-hit Vlad in the game, right? Because he walked and doubled, so he did Vlad one better. And also, he pitched six innings and allowed two runs against a really tough lineup. So I would say that Otani had the better game. But if you're going to go with the head-to-head matchups, yeah, I might even give Vlad a slight edge there. But How much fun is it that when you said that we got a matchup of the two leading AL MVP candidates, we actually got a head-to-head matchup? Not just their two teams were playing each other. They happened to be on the same field in opposite dugouts. But they were actually facing off, which is not something that would ever happen unless I guess you had a, a pitcher who is contending for the award. But just another merit of having two-way Otani in the season that he's having is that we actually got a showdown pitcher versus batter here, which is not something that you would normally see. I walked right into that. Yes, he did.
0: I, I think the one uh, analog I can draw is, what was it, like 2019 when Cody Bellinger robbed Christian Yelich of a homer? When they were the two best players in the National League, so you sort of got that, but you couldn't plan for it necessarily it, anywhere near the same way you could with Vlad and Otani. No, yeah. wasn't there a, a Trout robbed Yelich too? Is that a different one? We talked. Well, we talked about Trout robbing
1: Yelich last week on the show, but they obviously yeah. weren't contending for the same award. I guess like mm-hmm. every so often you'd see a pitcher versus hitter like Rookie of the Year matchup. You know, I think if anything, this speaks to the fact that Jacob deGrom should have won at least one MVP award in the, the past five years and uh, just never really came close. And that's, you know, as as much as I don't really argue with uh, with awards voting anymore, as as much as it's gotten a lot better and smarter over the past 10 years, that that still stings a little bit.
2: Yeah, I keep hearing that there's absolutely no contest here and that Otani is totally running away with the award. And you would think I would be all for that narrative. I mean... (laughs) I was going to say, I think I I keep hearing rhetoric like that. Yeah. Like, the call is coming from within the house. (laughs) I'm not actually sure that that's true, that you can't construct a valid argument for Vlad. I mean, obviously you could if you wanted to bring in the rest of the team (laughs) and where the Jays are in the playoff race, Relative to the Angels and all of these, what I would consider extraneous factors. And so that might actually make it closer than you would think based on their war, let's say, which I guess depending on which war you're looking at, Otani has a sizable lead now when you compare his pitching and his batting or you combine them at least. But. The offensive numbers for Vlad are so impressive that with anyone else, I I think he would have a strong case. It's just it's tough to beat the story of Otani, even though he's on the Angels, who are once again 500 every day. I think he probably you know, still has it barring some slow end to the season and he's been slumping a little lately. I've, I've got to be honest about when he is not hitting a home run every day. So there's still plenty of time for things to change.
0: I don't want to start an MVP debate now. I will just say Vlad isn't even leading the Blue Jays in war, according to baseball reference. It's Marcus Semien. And I do not anticipate anyone actually voting for Semien ahead of Guerrero, barring something strange happening over the last six weeks of the season. But I do think there's a pretty substantial gap between Vlad and uh, and Otani right now. I think Semien's probably third, but it is interesting to see, I think even since the All-Star break, because Otani has continued to play two ways and Vlad has also slowed down a bit, that the gap has only widened, in my view.
1: Yeah, I like you look at the the offensive numbers. I think Vlad's clearly better. It's like 40 points of on base percentage, but it's not so great a gap that like it that Otani doesn't make up for it by having 17 starts of like down ballot Cy Young rate stats like this is this is the this was what otani's like this is what was on the otani packaging like was not that he's gonna be liter like literally the best hitter and literally the best pitcher like he was in Japan but he's going to be an all-star caliber dh or corner guy and also like a number two starter at the same time and so if you put together two five or six win players you get a 10 or 12 win player and that's pretty much what's happening this year uh after a couple seasons of false starts and uh and injuries and so forth so i Particularly now that the novelty hasn't worn off, like I could see Otani if he stays healthy, getting to the point where like Mantle or Albert Pujols or Trout in their prime, voters just sort of get bored of them winning every year. Like I could see the novelty wearing off in five years, but not now. This is his first serious challenge to the for a major award, I guess, apart from the the Rookie of the Year, the first serious MVP challenge, I should say.
2: Yeah. And Otani is also out slugging Vlad, right? And he's out homered Vlad. So even offensively, like I agree with you that if we were going purely by batting stats, you would give the edge to Vlad. But there is also that other side of the argument. So I'm um, certainly uh, pro-Otani winning. And even if I could endeavor to be objective about it, I would say that he has the stronger case. I'm just saying it's not totally over. You never know what could happen.
1: I don't know. I think so is as left left brain is the math side, right? As, as left brain as I try to be about, uh, player evaluation, I think for MVP, there is like, a, I think a valid narrative component when, when the players are, are close. Like if, you know, if they're within like a win or something like that, or, or if the, the, no, if you can make a, a good faith argument both ways, then just pick it to, you know, give it to the, to the guy who, uh, um, has a better story basically. And this is the case for Otani. I think as much as I would like I I was I was banging the the bell for for Vlad as MVP throughout the season. I would love to see him win it. If not this year, then then soon down the line I think it's coming. But uh I just don't know how you make a like a a qualitative or a narrative based case for anybody other than Otani right now.
2: Yeah. If his season ended today, which would be horrible and I hope doesn't happen, he would still be the story of this season. I think at least on a player level, there's no more salient story. There's no more interesting or exciting story. So not that you should give out the MVP award based on who's the better story, but he's also the better player. So, (laughs) yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, Is this a reverse jinx attempt? I'm so surprised (laughs) by this from you.
2: Yeah, maybe. I'm just, I'm trying to establish my objectivity here by uh, doing the devil's advocate case.
1: Yeah, sure. That's worked out (laughs) so well across media in the past five years. Um, All right. The big game from last night, obviously, was the Field of Dreams game, which we previewed on the pod last week, which turned into... You know, I think it was a great spectacle, uh, and the game started out hot and sort of dragged in the middle innings and then went into fucking overdrive in the ninth inning. It was one of the wilder ninth innings that that you're going to see with home runs by, uh, Aaron judge, Sean Carlos, Stan, and then a two run walk-off shot by Tim Anderson, uh, who I did not realize could hit the ball that hard. Like I didn't like he went oppo and he hit the fucking fuck out of that ball, uh, in prime time in front of the corn. Uh, it's a good, I, I don't know, we talked about being pro gimmick and I think this gimmick worked out pretty well. The last gimmick game that that MLB put on that I can remember uh, turning out this well on TV was, I guess, maybe the Cuba game in, in 2016. Uh, you know, I don't know if there's something else, something else obvious that I'm missing here.
2: Yeah, I kind of have a hard time telling whether this was a great event or just a great game. It was great regardless, but this was just an awesome game, which MLB kind of lucked out with the timing. I mean, you put two two good teams together and all of the talent that was on that field, but You had, what, five lead changes. You had a couple really good relievers blowing leads late to really good players who hit the ball deep into the cornfield. So it was certainly enhanced by the setting and the novelty value. But if you had put this game almost anywhere, I mean, no one would have been paying particular attention to it if it was just another mid-August game. But just saying as entertainment this was a whole heck of a lot better than it would have been if it had just been a blowout in a cornfield instead. So I think that I'm in favor of the gimmicks and I look forward to future Fields of Dreams games and also future games in other unorthodox settings. I'm just, I don't know how much to lower my expectations based on the fact
0: that not all games are this good. I think that the presentation of the game, particularly the beginning with Kevin Coster's long walk from the outfield, kind of fit the Field of Dreams ethos in that it was a whole lot of schmaltz, but also kind of worked. Um, I think aesthetically, the game was really cool. I love the White Sox jerseys, which you all talked about on the pod last week. I really like the Fox score bug. I would be happy if they just replaced the score bug they used throughout the playoffs with the one they had last night with more of the old-timey flair. And I think that certainly helped. I wish that there hadn't been fences and the balls just could have gone into the corn. Although, you know, we exactly. went over this last week.
1: You're wrong. <laughs> do not You don't uh, want to mess with The
0: that. mystic powers beyond our control. But I think the the selection of the teams obviously worked out in a way that MLB might not have been able to anticipate before the White Sox got this good. But I, I think baseball has so many games, 162 games, 30 teams, that they have the ability to experiment and not really detract from the overall product. Yeah, the White Sox lost one home game at U.S. Cellular. it that what it's still called, I think. Um, but they still have 80 other games to no, play. No, it's guaranteed
3: rate. Right oh, now. gosh, Jake Mintz bikes all the way there, and you still can't get the name right, Zach. The
1: only guaranteed rate I'm aware of is Tim Anderson hitting three. There we go. But zing,
0: I almost said Comiskey, so at least give me credit for that. <laughs> <laughs> um, they they have 80 other games, and I think. MLB with all of its teams has the ability to kind of play around with this and still have plenty of other games for the the regular home fans to see.
1: Yeah, I saw Randy our uh sometime colleague make this point on Twitter last night. I think it's a good one that you get 81 home games. So why don't you take one series a year and move it somewhere special? Like, you know it's i don't know that there's going to be anything with as good a movie tie-in like as iconic a, a setting as this field of dreams game in in Iowa but you know you find a, an interesting place an interesting backdrop you know it's a, a side of baseball you know we've seen them move the game to williamsport uh you know that was fun with the the mets a couple years ago um and you just put it, put the game in a different setting. I think this works well in college football. It works well in hockey. um, And that way you can get every team involved and, and rotate it around. And maybe you have that one marquee event uh, like the game last night. I think, you know, yes, I think they lucked into uh, the game being good and having that dramatic ending, but also they, they put two teams in it that are loaded with stars. And if you give stars an opportunity, you you put enough stars in the game, then some of those stars are going to come through, or some of those stars are going to be involved in the narrative. And I think, like if the the White Sox had ended up winning that game like eleven to three, then maybe they lean in on more in-game interviews, um, you know, more montagey stuff. Which I think, in contrast to a lot of in-game stuff that we've seen, they were really good at at you know miking up Tim Anderson and interviewing Garrett Cole and Liam Hendricks, guys who are good on the. Are, you know, good on camera. Um, I think they did a, a good job of of doing that in-game interview with Kevin Costner, which went on way longer than uh, your average in-game interview. I think it was just executed really well, and I think they would have leaned into to that if the you know if the ninth inning hadn't delivered the way it did. But I think that there's an opportunity to um, to expand this a little bit, and also like not to um, try to harsh the buzz or anything, but we've seen a lot of discourse in the past couple, you know, in the lead up to this game about how field of dreams is not everybody's perception of, of nostalgia or baseball and, you know, how it's, some people think it's corny. Some people, you know, say it's, Harkening back to like a pre-integration form of baseball in like middle America with the farmhouse. And that's a yeah, it's a fraught depiction these days. So if they do more of these big event games, they get to showcase more, um, more environments, you know, appeal to to more people who maybe didn't think the the Field of Dreams game as we saw last night was their cup of tea.
0: There's certainly no shortage of pop culture baseball references to lean into. The the Twins are out of the pennant race this year. Let a 12-year-old manage the team for a game in homage to Little Big League. We could go with Major League to expose the depravity of a team's ownership group. There are so many possibilities. I don't
1: think they're going to want to use that as a marketing <laughs>
0: <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, the Cubs could probably use
2: Henry Rowan Gartner, right? He'd probably be the best pitcher on their staff now and the only hard thrower. He could certainly <laughs> yeah, throw the hardest. Exactly. Was that a pun when you said that Field of Dreams is corny, or was that accidental? I wouldn't put it past you. <laughs> oh, that actually. So I've prepared,
1: I've prepared a, 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 a so I've prepared two documents. One is our our rundown, and I have another Google Doc open right now titled 813 Podcast Jokes. <laughs> and on this document is the all corn line. Would you like to hear the all corn line yes, from baseball history? All right, catcher. Buster Pozole. Okay. First base, Lance Nixtamalization, Second base, Bill Mazeroski. Ooh,
2: that's good. That's not bad.
1: Yeah. Third base, Hominy Run Baker. <laughs> Shortstop, Kevin Stalker. Left field, Andy Van Silk. Center field, anyone want to guess who center field is going to be? Oh, wow. Ty Cobb. Oh, of course. Right field, Jack Daniels, the 1950s outfielder, because Tennessee whiskey is made out of at least 51% corn. Pitcher, Masahiro Tanaka. (laughs) And our manager is Connie Mack, born Cornelius McGillicuddy. And the owner of this team is Colonel Jacob Rupert. Wow. What do you guys think?
0: The one person I expected to be on this list did not appear Hall of Famer Johnny Mize.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I got the. I put Mazeroski in the, in the lineup early and I didn't want to repeat a pun. <laughs> I I don't know if you guys saw who the the first baseman was on this team but I had to stretch quite a bit to <laughs> get 12 different corn puns into the uh into this lineup. So my big question before revealing this was whether I could spend like a minute listing off all these jokes and Uh, without Ben laughing once. And the answer to that is a clear yes. So a win for for the all-corn
2: lineup here. I snickered. I chuckled. Let's put it that way. No Nate Cornejo? He came to mind. Maybe that's too on the nose. I don't know. But I thought this was a good game also just because like the production values were really high. I mean, it stood out not just because it was in a cornfield, but also just because of the camera angles. Like I liked that zoomed in sort of centered cam, like the center field view. It was like a little close at first. I was kind of claustrophobic, but it grew on me. And I liked the angles and I liked the views of the players walking in. And there was just sort of an intimate feel that you don't get in the typical game. And I guess you can't devote that kind of production resource to every single game because there are just so many. But if you could do it even once a week or once a month, it would be nice to to see that sort of production value devoted to baseball. It's like Joe Sheehan made the point, I think, that this felt like a football broadcast almost in a baseball game. And there are so many fewer football games that you can do that, and it's not cost prohibitive and time prohibitive if you have one game a week. But even so, it, it would be nice, and it was nice to see that sort of uh, attention devoted to baseball for once.
1: Yeah, the other thing is they're not playing in a 40,000 seat stadium. They're only playing in like an 8,000 seat temporary bandbox. So you can get like, you could be a lot more creative with the camera angles there.
0: Can I toss out one wild conspiracy theory that I don't actually believe, but I want to mention because independently producer Bobby and I uh, both mentioned it in pre-production today, which is did they reduce the balls for this game? Uh, There were eight home runs in this game. Uh, Fun fact that the 1919 Chicago White Sox of uh, Shoeless Joe Jackson fame had nobody who hit more than seven home runs, and they also had no pitchers who allowed more than seven home runs all season long, and there were eight homers just in this one game. Uh, Obviously, like Aaron Judge and Giancarlo Stanton and Eloy Jimenez are very powerful men and can hit home runs even without the benefit of uh, doctored balls, but I just want to toss it out there. Did they... Bring in the 2020 batch just to get some extra dingers into the corn.
1: I mean, after a couple innings of this game, I was positively bereft that Lance Lynn had allowed four runs. I was looking for answers. I couldn't figure out how this could possibly come to pass. And uh, Juice baseballs works for me. So that's my... I'm co-signing your weird conspiracy.
3: <laughs> well, since we have since we have been here, can I just ask a question about this theory that I I also have and think happened? But I don't think that like MLB is just keeping around a batch of each balls from each year. So how would they have juiced it? In theory, let's put together a case, a hypothesis for how they might have juiced it just for the Iowa game. Did they just like not Put the balls in the right humidifier. Did they? What what would happen there that they could easily juice it for one game? And they also like juiced it for the home run derby too, right? That was definitely yeah. True. Well, they didn't dejuice it
2: at least with the humidor for the home run derby. They could have a, a box of 2019 leftovers sitting around that they broke. Do you think out it's here?
3: labeled like balls for when we <laughs> want more home runs in a game or like what? No,
1: I'm sure there'll be some sort of like colored label on it. But yeah, like it's it, it's not like. Well, you know, I say that, and then, and yet, crimes on the the Dodgers server. So maybe yes, it's literally labeled balls for when we want home runs. <laughs> you don't
2: think it was the dimensions of the park? This is not Coors Field Midwest. Is Denver Midwest? I guess that's on the border. But you don't think that it would play like this just with the regular balls? I I couldn't tell. It's hard to say. Obviously, they weren't doing like wind tunnel studies it for the field. So
3: of small, game. but yeah, I,
1: yeah. I actually didn't look up the dimension, the outfield wall dimensions before uh, the show. So I don't know if it is small.
3: Also, I think six of
0: the six of the eight home runs were opposite field too. So something weird, something fishy going on there. The dimensions did. uh, I think the dimensions were fine. The field maybe just looks small because there was an unusual crowd configuration and, you just aren't used to seeing it that way, especially from the new camera angles that Ben was talking about. So, I think the field is probably normal size. Like, I would love to see a, an MLB game on an actual little league field just to see what would happen. But I don't think that was the case here.
1: Someone would die for an MLB game on a little league field. With the <laughs> the forty six, it's a forty six foot mound and sixty foot bases. Yeah, that's dangerous. Speaking of big guys who hit the ball far, uh, which we saw a lot of last night, there was a time when there was nobody bigger and hitting the ball farther than Chris Davis, who announced his retirement this week. Uh, What a bizarre career uh, highlighted by the, I mean, he sort of came out of of nowhere in his late 20s, was a, a key player on those early 2010s Orioles teams. Uh, famously at that 53 home run season in 2013 where he probably would have gotten MVP consideration if that hadn't come in the uh in the midst of the Mike trap versus Miguel Cabrera rivalry of the early 2010s um Ben what do you you know what do we say about about chris Davis you know who dominated and then became inconsistent and then became sort of a you know a tragic figure and it's weird to weird to call him tragic when like it's just purely on field, like I've but uh, yeah, just one of the, one of the stranger career arcs that that you're gonna see for a top level player like that,
2: yeah, and I guess those two sides of his story are pretty inseparable, and maybe even the latter part will be best remembered, which is unfortunate because at his height, he was one of the best hitters in baseball and the best home run hitter in baseball. He led the majors in homers in 2013 and 2015 with 53 and 47, respectively. And as it turned out, he just didn't have a whole lot of staying power. And obviously he had some injuries and surgeries in recent years, but it was more than that. It was just one of these cases of, I guess, a a player with old player skills who just doesn't age well. And I don't know if this is like the Ryan Howard kind of contract where it was like everyone was saying at the time, this is not the best investment. I mean, I guess there was some of that, but at least like Davis, you know, they were signing him coming off his good years. And I don't think anyone could have expected that he would decline as precipitously as he did. I, I think he had a 80 OPS plus with the Orioles post extension. Yeah. And it was
1: 147 the year before. And so it's, Mm -hmm. you know, I I don't think anybody expected it to to age or expected him to age as poorly as he did. But I think there was a a recognition that this is sort of paying for past performance, which, you know, I don't have a problem with like baseball players get wildly underpaid up front. It's okay to to shell out, you know, to make to make whole somebody who means as much to a team as Chris Davis did to the Orioles.
0: Yeah, and I think his legacy is, for obvious reasons, tied up in that 2013 season when he hit 53 home runs. He was the only player between Jose Bautista in 2010 and Stanton in 2017 to break 50 because that was kind of the dead offense era. So hitting 50 home runs was a real achievement. Uh, But I think the 2015 league-leading total that Ben referenced is also just as important because he wasn't just a one-time wonder. He wasn't Brady Anderson hitting 50 for the Orioles. He was the best home run hitter for a five-year period from 2012 to 2016, his first five full seasons in Baltimore. He hit more home runs than anyone else in the majors. So it wasn't just, oh, he had one good year and they overpaid him thereafter. He was really good for half a decade. He was the league leader twice in that span. And I think he was one of the first of the really high homer, high strikeout hitters Once that was finally accepted by Sabermetrics. He broke 200 strikeouts twice, leading the majors both times. And obviously that presage, what was to come once his power kind of disappeared. But for a while, he was really good. It wasn't just that one season.
2: And I think also we remember the bad times even more just because of the famous streak, right? The 0 for 54, or I guess it was 62 consecutive plate appearances without a hit. I mean, that really focused the attention on how bad he had been, that he was just suddenly unplayable. Like, this was not your normal garden variety decline. This wasn't even like an Albert Pujols decline. It was like a story that everyone was following for a while that he just could not buy a hit. And I think that probably focused the attention. So, you know, if that hadn't happened, if he had been bad, but had sprinkled in a couple hits here and there and and not had that record setting streak, then I, I don't know that he would have escaped the attention, but it probably wouldn't have been quite as big a story as it became just because you know the orioles haven't been any good for the last few years anyway so it's not as if uh carrying davis has been getting in the way of their contending or anything
1: yeah and you know one of the i don't know this was sort the, the davis story was sort of uh i don't know how to how to describe it but it was instructive i think it was stephanie apstein at sports illustrated who wrote about like the mental toll that 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 decline and particularly that streak had, uh, had taken on, on Davis. And that was, you know, just another reminder that like, this is this game that, like I said, last week, you know, it's, it's all about failure and, you know, hitters, especially are going to fail far, far more often than they succeed. And when that piles up, it can, you know, it can, it can take its toll on somebody mentally and emotionally. And I think that like that, I don't know, it's that sort of made it hard to hard to know exactly how to feel about Davis, you know, when you know how you balance like the the disappointment and uh you know almost pity. And you know, I'm sure that that he wouldn't want to be pitied for the the way his career ended, but it's hard, you know, it's hard not to feel um empathy for somebody who achieved, you know, what he did uh in his late twenties twenties and then sort of hung around and, and Just had a really brutal decline
2: phase. As I recall, he handled that well, at least outwardly. I mean, I'm sure on the inside, he was dying a little bit, plate appearance by plate appearance. But as I recall, he, you know, persevered and it was almost semi inspirational. And you had people pulling for him too. It wasn't like people were piling on because at that point. That's
1: almost (laughs) worse sometimes. Like, you know, you become acutely aware that. That, you know, it's sometimes that that goes over from, you know, well-intentioned, but sort of feels patronizing. True. Um, not that I was going to say, not that I know what it's like to go 0 for 62, but I'm sure if you put me at, a, at, a, at the plate, I'm sure I could find out pretty quickly. Um, like an all-time great, like this is a sort of a, a footnote to his career, but an all-time great uh, pitching position player too. Uh, I think that like the Orioles put him back out out on the mound for, uh, for an inning or two in 2019. Um, I think that could have been something if they had decided to, to convert him. Yeah.
0: He won that extra inning game back in 2012 against Boston
1: with Texas, right? Yeah. Or no, he was with the Orioles at the time. Um, Yeah. Yeah. You got a a win in an extra inning game in in 2012. Um, So yeah, Chris Davis, enjoy your retirement. Uh, I don't know what to... This is a strange segue, but I'm going to do it anyway. Chris Davis, 35 years old, born in 1986, and uh, we're going to go to a segment that Zach called the curse of 1986 because since the trade deadline, uh, we've seen two teams that I thought were just locked in for the playoffs fall off a fucking cliff. Uh, Since July 30th, the trade deadline, the Red Sox... Um, FanGraph's playoff odds have gone down 22.2%. The Mets have gone down 43.4%. How is that
2: even possible? I still believe... I don't know if that makes you feel any better, Bobby. But that's where my my preseason picks. Yeah, I believe in the Mets. I uh, do not believe in the Red Sox any longer. But yeah, it's been really rough stretches for both of these teams. It's not like the Mets ever had a, a super commanding division lead because it, it seems like they've had about fifteen guys on the IL at any given time, and that is still the case. So, I still feel like we haven't seen the fully operational Mets. I mean, we may never, you know, I, I wonder there's still a chance that at least for the last few weeks of September, they might get DeGrom back, they might have Lindor back, maybe they'll get Syndergaard back pitching out of the bullpen, and then you'll see the team that everyone expected this to be. But, you know, they have some of their lineup is healthy now, Carrasco is back, so you can sort of see the pieces assembling there. And I still just feel like they're the most talented of these teams, you know, at least compared Compared to diminished Atlanta with the players they've lost. And so I'm still holding out hope for the Metsite. There are a lot of entertaining and fun players on this team, and I want to see it work for them for once. And I just, I, I'm very surprised. I think one of the most surprising things about this season is just that they haven't hit better than they have. And that the Yankees haven't also, I guess, both New York teams have underperformed offensively and been hit hard by injuries. But I keep waiting for that lineup to put some runs on the board. And I know it's partly the park, but they just, you know, they have good plate discipline, but they just have not hit the ball hard. (laughs) So you kind of have to do that to succeed.
0: Here's uh, in addition to their slump, the Mets biggest problem. According to Fangraph's uh, strength of schedule rankings, the Mets have one of the harder remaining schedules in the league, particularly among contenders. And then on the other end, there are two teams in the majors that have by far the easiest remaining schedule. Those are the Reds, which makes their chase uh, of the Padres for the second wildcard spot interesting, and the Phillies. So... The Mets, for instance, their next 13 games come all against the Dodgers and Giants. That could be pretty ugly. Obviously, DeGrom won't be back during that stretch. So if the Mets go like four and nine in that stretch, they could kind of be out of it by the time they get to the easier part of their schedule uh, in September. So I'm not sure what the next two weeks will hold for them, but they're crucial to kind of stay within touching distance of the Phillies because the Phillies have a really easy schedule the entire rest of the way. And that's
1: sort of been like a lot of my confidence in the Mets this season has not been because they themselves looks looked good because Ben's exactly right that they've been underplaying their talent, particularly on on offense. It's or, or like they haven't built up like that nine game lead or what we've seen from the. Uh, from the White Sox and the AL Central that, that really makes you think they've got this locked up, it's a lack of faith in Atlanta and Philadelphia. And what's happened in the past couple of weeks, yes, that since the deadline, the Mets had that stretch where they lost 7 of 8 and getting swept by the Phillies was, like, that was a kick in the nuts for sure. But it's not, but they've been 5, they've gone 5 and 7 since the deadline. It's just that the Phillies and the Braves had the 2nd and 3rd best records in the National League. And so, like, these are teams... That with just absolutely messed up vibes and and have you know have been for for years and you know the Phillies in particular have struggled to like actually put all the power they have down on the road but it's but you know I was confident that that the Mets would be able to to you know they did or that they didn't have a lot to to outrun and now you know the Phillies put together a couple good weeks and they're in first place and the Mets despite on balance, not you know they've been streaky, but they haven't been terrible. I guess uh, that that lead evaporated almost overnight. Now they're you know I think they're in pretty big trouble now.
0: The I think that the more surprising contestant to me is Atlanta because with all of their injuries to all of their young players, most notably Acuna, of course, I didn't really expect them to stay within striking distance and they remade their entire outfield at the deadline. They added Richard Rodriguez from Pittsburgh and they're still in there too. And it's not like they have a a super difficult schedule down the stretch either. They play Washington this weekend and Washington looks like the worst team in baseball ever since the trade deadline. So I think this is the three team race we expected. It's just that all the teams are much worse and look a lot different than we expected heading into the season because of the various injuries. But I don't know, d- does it make a difference that it's three teams in the race around 500 versus three teams kind of like we'd get in the NL West if the Padres were closer? That's obviously more compelling because those teams are better, but given the the franchises involved, you know, Philadelphia trying to return to the playoffs for the first time in a decade, I think there's still certainly some interest here even if it's more about can you win two games in a row versus winning six in a row like in the NL West.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's compelling in a different way. I think the franchises involved, like you said, matters a lot because there's a lot of like there's a lot of pretty recent bad blood between all or among all three of these teams. And, you know, you don't get the tension where if you make one mistake, you're done. It's I guess the the only way it's materially worse, I would say, than if than the NL West race that we thought we were going to get Um is that one of these teams could really just saw its own leg off and and fall you know fall completely out of the race at the drop of a hat which I don't really see you know happening to the Dodgers or Giants at this point um and I didn't really see happening to these teams at the beginning of the season when I thought all three of these teams were probably among the 10 best of You the thought
0: league. there was no chance that anyone on the Mets would saw his own leg off you're not imaginative enough Okay
1: yeah you're right maybe not literally there's definitely a chance somebody on the Phillies could, I don't know, make, make an ill-advised medical decision that would impact the pennant race.
3: I mean, they're already not drinking water, so they're kind of halfway there. That's like almost as bad as sawing your own leg off. Does anyone have any theory for why the Mets can't hit anything, fastballs down the middle, why all of their players are not hitting well? They've already obviously fired one hitting coach throughout the season. They're not going to fire a second hitting coach in the middle of the season, but it, it is kind of like shocking to watch every single player go through their worst offensive year at the same time? I think it's because Pete Alonso just loves the troops too much.
1: I think he's devoting all his energy to to loving the troops and not enough to hitting. He's actually the only one hitting. I know. Well, he loves them so much. He's like like Lenny with the rabbit. He's squeezing the life out of the, out of the bats because he loves the troops so much.
0: Even if you look at their individual lines, though, like, 127 OPS plus for Alonso pretty good. Jonathan VR as a 105 OPS plus and that's VR's better than you would expect from him. That's legend. Jonathan Brandon Nimmo VR. 128. Like they have good individual hitters, it just kind of like the Yankees earlier in the season when they were all slumping at the exact same time. Maybe it's something in New York. I don't know.
2: Yeah, Mike, you mentioned the Marlins and how unlucky they've been this year. They've been outscored by 17 runs this season and they are 48 and 67. The Phillies have been outscored by 15 runs in their five games over 500. The Mets have been outscored by 13 runs, and they are four games over 500. So, I don't know whether that means they should be worse or the Marlins should be better. I guess it means Send both. all these losers <laughs>
1: home and put the Marlins yeah, in the playoffs. Just let yes.
2: let one of the teams from the with AL wild race that will not make the playoffs just move to the NL East and dominate everyone because that's how bad this division is.
3: Foulman, that's the only resolution that that keeps us friends. Is sending every other team home and sending the Marlins to the playoffs to represent the NL East.
1: Or yeah, I, I don't know. I kind of like Ben's idea about loaning a team to the to um, from the AL wild card race because, like, if this Blue Jays team doesn't make the playoffs, I'm gonna scream. And it's it's looking like that's looking more and more likely. I think we should just pretend that the uh, the timeline where the Phillies. Uh, changed their name to the Blue Jays in the 40s, that that had stuck. And so we should just put the Blue Jays in the playoffs from the from the National
0: League East. What a perfect segue to talk about Boston, because one of the teams chasing them is the Blue Jays. And Mike, you mentioned that it's not just the Mets are slumping. It's that Philadelphia and Atlanta are playing well. If you look at the AL standing since uh, July 28th, which is when Boston's swoon really began, heading into that date, Boston was tied with Houston for the best record in the AL. Since then, Boston is 3-11 and for the worst record in the AL. And during that same span, Toronto has the second best record in the league, Tampa has the third best record in the league, and the Yankees have the fourth best record in the league. So it would be one thing if Boston had a two-week slump, but the fact that every other team has picked up at least six and a half games on them because they're all playing well at the same time has, I think, exacerbated Boston's problems and made their playoff situation look a lot more tenuous. Before this stretch, they had a 96% chance of making the playoffs per fan graphs. Now it's down to about two-thirds. They still have the lead. The Yankees blew a game last night. The Blue Jays lost against the fighting Otanis. But I think they're both close enough to striking distance. Oakland's playing well, too, that there are way too many teams for this uh, game of musical chairs uh, remaining for Boston to really feel comfortable.
1: How are you coping with
0: Garrett Richards getting
1: booted from the rotation? Like, are you all right? I haven't, we we haven't <laughs> talked about this yet.
0: Well, so it's obviously sad. I think he was one of the more outspoken uh, pitchers about the elimination of sticky stuff, which maybe doesn't say uh, great things about our past love for him. But I think one of the reasons Boston has been so competitive this year is the health of their rotation. They have had just six guys make all of their starts. And until Richards was booted, like their five main starters have all made at least 22 starts this year, except the issue is only like one of them is any good, uh, Ivaldi. and, yeah, it's great to not have to dip into your AAA pool of replacement starters, but when it's Eduardo Rodriguez with a five two four ERA or Garrett Richards with a five two two ERA or Martín Perez with a four eight ERA, it's not like you're keeping the you know the the Dodgers rotation healthy or the Mets rotation healthy. And I think the fact that Boston didn't make any rotation upgrades at the deadline could really come back to haunt them. Chris Sale returns this weekend, of course, and that could put them back in the right direction. But uh, it's Tanny West and poor Garrett Richards. This one
2: is surprising to me just because of how many wins Boston banked earlier in the season and the playoff odds figure that Zach cited earlier as well. But it's a little less surprising to me just in that it was surprising to me that the Red Sox were doing as well as they were. This was not a team that I expected to be nearly this good this year. So Even post-decline, they are exceeding my preseason expectations here, and I think that's for some of the reasons that Zach just cited. Like You have to love the core of this team, particularly the position player core, but I just didn't know how they were going to surround those really great middle-of-the-order hitters and position players that they have, and... The reason that they've succeeded thus far is that their depth has not been tested. If the depth was their weakness, it has not been exposed. Whereas the teams that we've been talking about, like the Mets, with whether they had depth or not, it has been tested to the limits. So, Boston has gotten a little lucky with health in a season where bad health has just totally tanked some team seasons. And I don't want to take anything away from them, but I'm just saying that uh, in that sense, because I was surprised that they were playing as well as they were and thought they were a bit over their heads. And the fact that they are in a team, they're in a division with three other legitimately good teams. And so if any of those teams make the playoffs, I would look at the roster and say, yeah, that's a better team than the Red Sox. So it would still sort of surprise me that the Sox would have squandered that lead. But in the end, I would say probably justice was done. And I guess, you know, some people, including our boss, Bill Simmons, right? Not particularly pleased by the Red Sox approach at the trade deadline they picked up a couple of relievers who were not pitching well and Kyle Schwarber. Who was hurt and also seems like a strange fit for this roster. And so I guess the question is should they have done something more aggressive? Should they have done the all in Blue Jays type move? I know that they were linked to some of the top pitchers on the market, but it just doesn't seem like they have the prospect depth that could have competed with some of the teams that actually landed those top targets. And if you figure that they're not quite there yet and that the season is gravy in a sense, I mean, it's hard to write it off when you do as well as they did at the start of the season, then you start to sniff it and you want it to be true. But because they're a bit ahead of schedule as far as their rebuild is concerned, I'm not surprised that they didn't push all their chips in and their prospect chips are not quite as impressive to begin with.
0: At the same time, though, they were in first place at the trade deadline. So I don't think you can say everything's gravy, especially when you're a team with Boston's financial resources in recent history and Yeah, maybe they didn't have the prospects to add like Scherzer and Trey Turner, but there were other avenues they could have taken, I think. And they've also, just in the last two weeks, seen their luck regress a bit. Maybe, I don't know, they were expecting that, but they had been one of the luckiest and clutchest teams in the majors to that point, I guess, to the extent that you uh, attribute clutchness to luck. But that has disappeared. They've lost a bunch of close games recently. Matt Barnes alone. Has lost three games. As I think he's admitted, he's been overworked. So they, I, I think they need something. They have the strong core, but without those those fringe additions at the deadline, like we've seen the Dodgers do, like we see the, the Padres adding Adam Frazier, which ended up helping because Fernando Tatis got hurt and they needed another infielder. I think when you're a team that has eyes on the World Series. Those are the kinds of additions you need to make. It's not just a a Hansel Robles here or there.
1: Yeah, and as far as the season being gravy, you look at where they were last year and you think they win 84, 85 games in 2021, then that's a good year. But I think this is a case where the order those wins come in matters a lot in terms of selling it to not just the the public and the local media, but to the players too, making it feel like you're right on the right direction. Yeah. With that said, they're still in a playoff spot, and Ben, you mentioned them having really good starting pitching luck. That continues because Chris Sale. Like, is there a better time for Chris Sale to get healthy than them right at this moment? Um. T- you know, Tanner Houck's back in the the big league rotation too. He's pitched well in short spurts. I think that he could really give this rotation uh, a boost when you know and just do anything to stop the skid. Yeah. I don't know like i think toronto and toronto specifically is so good that they're going to have a tough time hanging on to that second wild card spot but they're not out of it by any stretch of the imagination
2: yeah, Sale has pitched really well in his minor league rehab starts, and now he gets to go against Baltimore, which is basically a glorified minor league rehab start. Normally, I wouldn't really counsel counting on a pitcher who hasn't pitched in the majors in two years and is coming back from Tommy John surgery. So,
1: Yeah, but one of the rules ever applied to Chris Sale? <laughs> yeah,
2: right. Well, for a long time, it was uh, he's going to get hurt, and then he didn't get hurt, and then finally he did get hurt. So I guess the rules belatedly applied to him there. but. Yeah, you would think that that would be about the best addition you could make that they probably couldn't have traded for someone of the caliber of Chris Sale. So <laughs> I think that's it's, that's
1: Mets logic. Yeah, our, our guy's going to get standard, healthy. Right. I mean, you know, the biggest addition you could make is uh, uh, we get uh, our Arson guy Arsene
2: Wenger logic is <laughs> he's like a new signing. Right, exactly. But it really could actually work that way in this case. So if he pitches as well as he has in Double uh, A AA and A, then that would be a pretty big... Big benefit to this Red Sox staff.
0: Good thing Chris Sale isn't still on the White Sox having to wear wear those Field of Dreams jerseys.
1: I thought about that. (laughs) I don't know what he would have done. Although the the collars on those look normal. Normal collar, guys.
0: So gut feeling, because if you look at the standings, if you look at the playoff odds, Boston is still ahead of Toronto, still ahead of New York. Uh, Do you think they get caught? Because I would say Toronto is going to catch them, but... I don't know. Am I reading too much into momentum when we know that doesn't actually exist?
1: I don't think it's momentum. I think that they're that Boston's legitimately the fourth best team in that division. Now, with that said, what's gonna happen is the Red Sox and Yankees are both gonna make the playoffs, the A's are gonna drop out, and the Blue Jays are gonna finish with the best run differential in the AL and miss the playoffs altogether. Like, cause we live in an unjust world. But um yeah, I like I don't think it's I don't think it's like narrative bootstrapping to say the Red Sox are in a little bit of trouble here, that that they're not in a great position with two, I think, two better teams this close to them.
2: Yep, I agree. I, I would be quite worried about them. And in fact, I probably would not pick them to make the playoffs at this point, which sounds like a, a bolder prediction than I normally make. But I think, I you know, we're talking about back in my
1: chair. Yeah, I know. Sad. Wow
2: but it's like, what, two, two and a half games separating the Red Sox from the Yankees and the Blue Jays. And, you know, it's not a ton of time left in the season, but I kind of think the Yankees and Blue Jays are at least three games better than the Red Sox over that period of
0: time. It is weird that Boston and Toronto are completely done playing each other. And it's really early for that. Obviously, the way it ended with the Springer homer was really exciting. I wish we could still have more of those games remaining. Toronto has like a lot of games against the Orioles left and I wish we could have reoriented the schedule a bit so those were front-loaded and we got all the games between the four AL East competitors at the end.
1: Yeah. I mentioned this in a couple things. It was I think the the NL West reset I did a week or two ago. But like the ideal schedule is what the Padres have, where 19 of their last 37 are against the Dodgers and the Giants. And we got that front-loaded Padres Dodgers series in April. And then they just didn't play each other the entire middle of the season. Like I would love, like, I think that's the ideal way to to set something up. But I guess you could forgive the the schedule makers for not thinking that Red Sox, Blue Jays was going to be like the pivotal al pennant race matchup
0: yeah because in that scenario the orioles play 150 games before the all-star break because we just want all their games out of the way early
1: who would notice i you could get away with that all right we're gonna stick with the the al
0: um wildcard
1: slash al east race uh for the first part of the unnamed weekend preview segment uh and I'm picking this weekend, Toronto goes to Seattle, where all the Canadian Blue Jays fans in Vancouver are gonna uh, gonna show up in force. Um, this is an important series one because the Blue Jays just need to bank as many wins as possible if they're gonna catch the Red Sox, but Seattle's still dangling off the edge of that uh AL wildcard race. They're four and a half games out, two games behind Toronto. Um, you know, if they win this series, they're still in it. They live to fight another day. If they sweep. That's huge. If they lose the series, I think you can begin to write them off. And uh, that's a, a team that, was not expected to contend, I think is going to look back on the series or look back on the season as a positive, no matter what. But like, this is put up in sh- put up or shut up time for Seattle,
2: yeah. I guess I'll go with Dodgers Mets. We talked about the Mets situation and how important every game is for them. And the Dodgers really are kind of in crunch time, too. I mean, not when it comes to missing out on the playoffs entirely. But if we're talking about the N l West race, like, All season long, I mean, even after it's become clear that the Giants were not going to collapse, that they're not a mirage, that this is actually a pretty good team, I still expected the Dodgers to eventually overtake them right up until they made those major moves at the trade deadline and seemed like they had sort of sealed that. Well, they have not closed ground at all in the week since then. In fact, they've lost a little ground and they're now five full games behind the Giants with, you know, whatever, like six weeks to go in the season. That's not a lot of time to make up that much ground. It's still possible, but... Even the fangrass playoff odds, which have been believers in the Dodgers right from the start, are now saying it's like roughly a 50-50 shot. They're giving the Dodgers a 50.2% chance to win the NL West as we speak right now. And if the Fangrass playoff odds have lost confidence in the Dodgers, then maybe <laughs> everyone should.
0: And I also want to highlight a couple of the pitching matchups from that series because we have uh, Scherzer versus Carrasco on Sunday night, which will be fun. And on Saturday, we have a Walker versus Walker matchup. Walker Bueller versus Taiwan Walker. Fun stuff. Uh, I will shout out the uh, Reds versus the Phillies. Uh, Cincinnati, as I mentioned, has the easiest remaining schedule, and they are only three and a half back of the Padres as we speak. The Padres have been in something of a tailspin recently and I think the Reds are really getting close to where we have to take their infringement upon the playoff field seriously above my beloved Padres we have uh Zach Wheeler probably the Cy Young favorite at the moment going on Friday we have Aaron Nola versus Sonny Gray on Sunday and Cincinnati like Joey Vados uh hitting better than anyone since the all-star break basically uh Winker and Castellanos have hit all year so they're injecting themselves into the conversation, and I think this is a, a pretty key series before they face easier opponents in the next couple of weeks.
1: Man, I just have not paid attention to the NL wild card race because it's. Been, I thought it had been locked up, but yeah, either I mean either one of this, these these uh, series, if the the Mets or Braves can um, take a chunk out of the Padres this weekend, it could open up to a team from the East. So heady days here in the the wild card races. But this is the the sharp end of the season. This is the fun time where everybody's scoreboard watching. Uh I flipped over to the um the Blue Jays A's last night for the I think it was the second confrontation between or not Blue Jays A's, Blue Jays Angels, for the second confrontation between Vladito and Otani. And Buck Martinez was saying, oh, the the White Sox did the Blue Jays a favor by beating the Yankees that like love scoreboard watching and it's time to start doing that now
0: schedule runs out of string pretty quickly so
1: yeah All right. that will do it for this week's episode of the Ringer MLB show thanks as always to Zach and Ben for joining me thanks to Bobby Wagner and Mike Wargon for uh, producing today's episode thanks to Tim Anderson Chris Davis and Colonel Jacob Rupert for giving us stuff to talk about and thank you for listening enjoy the week's action and we'll see you next time